Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My most requested guest, certainly tied with Anna Koppelman, Seth Godin, ladies and gentlemen, one of my dearest friends, one of the people I most admire, one of my, really one of the smartest people I know. More than that though, most curious, wisest, most interested, which is what makes him incredibly interesting and um, an unbelievably kind person as well. Hi, Seth. Thanks, BK. And it's important to note that I'm the most requested by me. I request to be on the show more than any other guest because it's such a highlight for me to do this. You're, you can, you know, anytime you want to be on, you, you can be on. You know, it's really amazing too, man, because, you know, now that we've been doing this podcast for so long, we really, the very beginnings of our friendship, though we'd met before and stuff, was really through these conversations early on until then our families got to know one another. And today I got an email from somebody who used one of your sons in the email as like uh, his his good friend access point to me. So it's all amazing, which <laughs> obviously brought that guy to the top of the, very top of the, very top of the so mail I, inbox. I often remember if people want to go back in the archives, the first time we talked, because the tape was rolling when I walked in and I was, I had some trepidation and it just all worked out great. It was. It so was awesome. I came today to talk about the CIA and many things. I don't think I ever told you about my visit to the CIA, but maybe I did. But it's your show. Tell me what you want to talk about. Well, we're going to get to the CIA story 100%. Okay. Look, this new book, the moment you told me about it, the song of significance, the moment you told me about what inspired you, what you were thinking about, what you'd noticed in the world, what you noticed in the natural world that mirrored what you were noticing in our world. Um, we were sitting outside in a little shed. It was raining all around us. And I'm sure you saw in my face that I completely lit up. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you said you'd started writing this or thinking about it. And I, I freaked out. I said, like, this is the most, it's necessary. And I'm so grateful that you then wrote it and I got to read it early and um, it's wonderful and it's required reading. But And before I ask you about the natural world and all that stuff, here's where I want to start because I think it's right at the heart of this and it's far away from in a way where one might expect us to start, but I think it's valid. I was thinking about this line in The Godfather uh, where... Sonny turns to Michael, uh, and it echoes something that's said a few different times in the book and the movie, and says, it's business, it isn't personal. And reading your book and talking to you and thinking about the world we live in now, is that separation even a justification that applies at all anymore? And do uh, you know the people that you're speaking to, the people listening to this, is there really the ability to, or the need, or the desire, or should one think, well, it's business, it's not personal, so it's okay that, blah, blah, blah. And I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts on that. Well, I think there are two ways to go at it. The first way is it's impossible to be an emergency room doctor or a heart surgeon and think it's personal because you didn't kill that person. You showed up to do the best thing you could and what happened, happened. So this authenticity, personal thing that we carry around filled with shame might get in the way of being of service. But I think where you're going with it is, you know, we're going to be at work for 90,000 hours. We got brainwashed in school to believe that our only job is to do our job. And one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is give people a different map to the territory and point out that it is possible to do great work with heart and with humanity and to own the impact that you make in the world. That it is no longer okay to say, well, I was just doing my job. Because it's the word just that makes the whole thing fall apart. Well, I agree. But the shield, other than in the context you rightly point out, where in the same way you want uh, a third baseman in the most important moment of baseball game to just 
think of it as fielding a routine ground ball instead of thinking it's the most important ground ball of her life. Uh, you want a surgeon to just think it's a routine splenectomy and not the president's spleen because you have a much better chance of uh, not screw screwing up. But the corporate justification mm -hmm. to cut costs, to ask for more hours, to right. treat people impersonally is something that mm -hmm. really animates you as you're this question really animates you in the book. And so it's not just to me anyway, than however many tens of thousands of hours we spend. Can you talk just a little bit about the effect it has not just on the employees that one might treat a certain way, but actually on the employer doing those things and treating it that way. Talk a little about what you've discovered as you've been thinking about this. Right. So, this idea of just doing my job, I'm just making as much money for the corporation as I can. I'm just doing what Milton Friedman said the system wants. I'm just helping technology get to where it wants to go. I'm just earning back what the VC invested. I have no choice. These are the narration of the race to the bottom. And they let people off the hook because they're able to say, well, if I'm not some scheming, double-talking agent, someone else is going to be, so I might as well do it. And the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win. And <laughs> yeah. the, the, the challenge with this is if we don't personally take responsibility for how we spend our days, who will? And the only way the system gets better is when people choose to make the system better. There are way more trolls, apparently, in the world than there were 30 years ago. Why is that? It's not that there's more trolls in the world. It's that people are making a profit by amplifying trolls. Whoever decided that that was a good way to make a profit made a mistake and they should be responsible for that, but they don't want to be responsible for it. They're just doing their job. And when we announced that we have a department called human resources, what we've said is humans are a resource. They are a machine to be optimized, to be surveilled, to be measured and to be discarded when they are no longer at their prime. And when we do that, the toxic side effects are significant, not significant, are important. The toxic side effects lead us to a division between some people who say the purpose of our culture is to enable capitalism and other people who say the purpose of capitalism is to enable us to be better humans. And I'm firmly in the second camp. Well, I'm thinking about, as you were talking, I, the word that popped into my head was heartache. And I was mm -hmm. thinking about how much heartache working people feel, learn to tolerate, learn to ignore learn to close off, almost put a stent in, learn to, mm -hmm. learn to sort of uh, pretend isn't happening and the overall deadening effect that that has. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's part of the, the challenge of uh, industrial capitalism's desire for infinity. So if we think about a restaurant that's full all the time, that has a waiting list, you can't be a jerk as a customer at Rayos because they'll just put you on the no list and you'll never be back. So all the customers are on their best behavior and all the staff get to sing the, the day they want to, the way they want to, because they're engaged with people who are enrolled in where they want to go. Whereas if you're a customer service person at FedEx, all day long people are calling you on the phone and yelling at you. And you can't take that personally because it's deadening. And then if you are part of this system because you feel like you have no choice, you end up becoming calloused and less human for more than half your life. And I get that when Chicago was filled with slaughterhouses, there was no way to make butchering a hog something that was tenable. You had to sort of check out emotionally. But most of us don't work in a slaughterhouse. So we've built this fancy, fancy system. And yet we persist in showing up at work, acting as if other people are just pieces on a playing board as opposed to a fellow human being. You know, your early books, many of them, and the early books are sets better and better, but the, he's been excellent the whole time. And, <laughs> um, but your, your early books, I'm thinking of two of them in particular, sort of had this idea within them that if you decide to be curious and excellent, you can actually change the whole place. You can change 
how you feel, you can change the work you're doing, you can shape the work around you by refining who you're doing it for, the way you're doing it, how you conceive of yourself. And these were incredibly true and people's lives were changed by them. But I think part of what it seems to me you've noticed is that while those are still very valid and vital things to do, if the whole institution is built to uh, squelch that, it's much harder to do that now. Is that is that accurate? And if so, what did you discover and learn um, that made you want to write this book? Meaning, um, I think of myself as a purple cow, or I am gonna, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, refine my 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 audience. I'm gonna approach. But if I'm in an organization that that is not just deaf to it, but institutionally, decisionally deaf to it. Where does that leave me in the organization? So talk a little bit about that. So systems are invisible until we learn to see them. And I learned so many things about science and the climate, but about humans working on the carbon almanac. The system of extracting oil, making profit from it, then burning it is inherent. And it doesn't matter how hard someone in Cleveland or New York tries, they can't fix the system. So pushing uphill is a real challenge. And what this book is about is having a conversation with the people you are able to have a conversation with to start making systems change where you work. Because we're afraid to even have the conversation. So an analogy might be, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, where they don't have mountains, they have hills. And if you want to learn how to ski in Buffalo, you have to put up with a lot of nonsense because the kind of snow they get isn't really good for skiing. Or you could figure out how to organize enough people to get better snowmaking equipment put in because suddenly everyone's skiing will get better. And this version of snowmaking equipment is what are things like around here? How do we talk to each other? What's it like inside the writer's room of billions versus what's it like in someone else's writer's room? And this isn't about, I need to get the boss to give me a permission slip to do anything I want. It's about how do I take responsibility to engage with people to make things better, not just more comfortable, but better by exchanging a series of promises. Let's get real or let's not play because we are actually part of a system and we can't deny that the system exists. But you're also now read. I, I do think there's also, um, I'm thinking about apertures, lenses, and focus a lot lately as really mm-hmm. great metaphors. And so both you've opened the aperture and also pointed the lens and gotten different le- wider lenses. But part of what's happened to you in the years since you wrote those books, although it was always the case that you were addressing very um, influential people, as people who were your, as we all um, have aged, you have a, really uh, so many CEOs and managers who have grown up with you and who are now in those positions as they're reading you and thinking about what you've written and what you stand for. And this is the first book of yours I've read, taking the Carbon Almanac out of it where you're addressing, you know, obviously uh, 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 all of us and, 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 and big institutions as well. But this book, you kind of are directly addressing management in a way that mm-hmm. you haven't always done. I Meaning, it was always implied; it was always in there in some way. But you're you are, it seems to me, asking people to really think about what will serve them holistically and for their business when they're in the positions of authority now in a slightly more direct and specific way than in in sometimes in the past. I didn't think for one minute about whether my audience would be a different level of rank or whatever. I wrote a rant and the rant is designed to do something that I think the best business books I've ever read have done, which is after you experience it, you can't go back to work. You can't go back to work the same person you were yesterday because you see a different thing. And the urgency of it was highlighted by the pandemic, by the trauma people have been through, by what's going on with distributed work, by billionaires bullying uh, disabled employees in public and trying to fire them just for kicks. 
the end of the industrial age. We see it, we feel it, and we don't have a path forward. So I need to insert this story about the CIA. I will tell a short version. Tell a long version. So, all right. So I get a phone call from a guy named Talon Stone. And he says, will you come speak to every single person at the CIA who's moving up to the level of whatever? They have to come. I'm like, yeah, my friend Simon put you up to this. You don't really work at the CIA. And I hang up. And I Google Dr. Talon Stone. There's no such person as Dr. Talon Stone. So I call him back and I say, there's no such person as Talon Stone. He says, yeah, that's my code name. We're not allowed to use our real name. I said, Dr. Stone, the purpose of a code name is to pick James Smith. That when someone looks up, there are too many. Not that you're obviously using a code name. He says, yeah, yeah, I know. I should probably find a new code name. Anyway, they fly me to an undisclosed location, which is inside of an army base. So the army base rings it like a donut. They take all my electronics away and they put them in a locked Faraday cage and they bring me into this room. And there's 250 people there. And no one will look me in the eye. And every single person there has had to work under an assumed name, cannot tell their spouses what they do for a living, cannot tell their neighbors what they do for a living, and are cogs in a bureaucracy that insists they depersonalize everything. And that was the song of safety, that what those people are singing every day is, I hope I can get through this until I get my pension. They are filled with trauma and stress. They need to be there. They don't want to be there. And what I took away from that, and the reason I never went back to the CIA to speak again, um, was we can dehumanize people. We can do it by torturing them. We can do it by taking them to an undisclosed location and physically harming them. But we also do it to our employees by making them cogs in this system. And then AI shows up, and now bosses everywhere are going to say to their people, you better go faster than that computer. I'm just going to replace you. Make more mediocre work faster. And someone needs to speak up about this and say, no, not on our watch. We don't want to do, the, do it that way because we can do better. But, but the flip side, you know, I understand that you didn't think for a minute about the fact that your audience is in these other positions. Maybe I framed the question in a way that wasn't <laughs> as, as clear to you. But, but the, though, though that you, you apprehend everything. Uh, but... What I'm, what I'm trying to get at, Seth, is, yes, it's a rant, but you're a craftsperson. So, in fact, one of the things you would say is, yeah, there's a rant. So you write the rant, and that's for you. But then one has to do the work of changing that into mm -hmm. something for them in understanding the genre. I'm just, you know, unfortunately, dealing yeah. with someone who's read everything you've written uh, and has had endless conversations with you off mic. So... I can, um, you know, platform some of this back to you, which is sure you wrote a rant, but part of your process here is understanding your audience, meaning who your reader is, not in a math way of what's the, how can I sell the most books, but understanding, okay, I want to address leaders, not just, uh, I want to address leaders because of the holistic benefit on all sides of that transaction. So mm -hmm. that, and that's I think what I'm trying to get to uh, because yes, one way to frame it is uh, the reason is because you're gonna be in a race to the bottom and you're gonna win. But as you know, that race to the bottom comes with country club membership and uh, access to places like Augusta and airplanes and so Yes, while one might realize it's the race at the bottom at the end, the ride along the way is pretty cushy. So what is it that you're actually trying to say to people about how they might be able to feel different if they approach things? And maybe a way to, a way to talk about this is, why don't you explain the central thesis of the book and, 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 and its kind of broader application to both to workers and to management but I'd like you to go further and talk also about the inter interiority of the manager, you know, because you're thinking about all this stuff and you're writing about it. So go do the whole thing. You have, you know, seven minutes to just talk. I, I will do my best. You, are we talking about bees now? Which, which hook are you looking for? All of for it. Yeah, say? man. What, okay. So Jacqueline Freeman writes about the song of increase. And the song of increase is what happens when a hive has survived a long, hard winter. 
and realizes that they can leap forward. And the maidens will instruct the queen to lay a new queen egg, which is very rare. They will replenish all the honey in the hive in just a few weeks. And then on command, without a commander, they will suddenly, 12,000 bees, leave the hive in less than four minutes and swarm to a tree 100 feet away. That's the Song of Increase. It's thrilling to hear. It's life-changing. These bees leaping into something with heart. And um, the Song of Safety I told you about. That's what the bees do after they get out. They only have three days to find a new place to live. If they don't, they're all going to die. And humans aren't bees. But what we can learn about being organized without an organizer, what we can learn about this leap, is that what we seek is meaning. And certainly Viktor Frankl has been quoted on this podcast more than most. And the second half of Man's Search for Meaning is all about his work as one of the pioneers of psychotherapy. And our search for meaning, finding work that's worth doing, is what possibly lights us up for our entire lives. It's the narrative of forward motion. And we only started sacrificing it at work a little while ago, where the industrialist said, no, we don't need you to lift heavy objects, but we do need you to do exactly what we say under surveillance. And so, you know, when I think about uh, Amazon, Amazon, I believe, is going to be the last new giant company with six figures worth of people who are working at the facility following instructions. David Risher was one of the people who helped build Amazon. He's now the CEO of Lyft. And he just announced recently that everyone at Lyft HQ has to go back to work. And I got to say, I think they've all been at work. They just haven't been in the office. And what he is missing, and he's not going to buy my book because he's, as you said, one of those country club card-carrying people in charge who doesn't look for a different way to do this, is his employees are going to say, you know what? The fact that you can't figure out a great way for us to work in a distributed fashion isn't a failure of distributed fashion. It's a failure of imagination. And if you want people who can make things better, if you want people who will solve interesting problems who are better than AI, you're going to have to dance with what is possible today, not what was optimal 15 or 20 years ago. Well, talk about that dance. Well, so the dance is not to settle and to sing kumbaya around the fireplace and be nice to everybody. The dance is to raise standards, to make bigger promises, but to criticize the work, not the worker. To be able to create the conditions for people to show up and do their best work because they can, not because you're someone who knows how to read focus group data and you're going to tell them what to do. And this idea that we can create distributed teams, whether they're in person or not, where people are contributing because they can, because they want to, because they dream of it. How can that not lead to better outcomes for everybody? We're past the time when we need to optimize for machines because the machine is a laptop and everyone already has one. Is a hard part of this that most of us don't take the time or haven't had the training to understand how to have the conversations that translate into... It's a criticism of the work, not the person. And, and in an era where often editing is seen by the person being edited as a form of, um, if abuse is too big a word, but as a form mm -hmm. of a personal invasion in a way. Mm -hmm. How can we retrain ourselves? Because like work is personal because we take so much time, right? Uh, this stuff matters to us. So either the choice is to stay really alive to it or to deaden ourselves, as you said, like the per person, the customer service line. And this is where the nuances are important because we take it personally. We care. If we don't care, we're becoming mechanized. We care. So we produce work that we care about. But then because there are incentives, because it's a business, because people have to profit in order to pay for people's insurance and benefits. How do we get both passionate and dispassionate at the same time? And I understand the group uh, identity thing, mm -hmm. but I think it's, uh, I have seen it be challenging. And I wonder yes. how, how do you think about those things? The era we're in, the way people internalize uh, criticism of the work as being personal, 
uh, because people aren't maybe trained to have the conversations. This, this feels like really hard, advanced stuff. So how did Danny Meyer become the most uh, well-off, successful entrepreneur who makes food in America? He doesn't know how to cook. Right? Well, but he would Danny take Meyer issue with that. He would say he's a very good cook, but yes, he doesn't cook in his restaurants. He likes it. He likes it if I say he's not in the kitchen. He's not yes, he's cooking not in the, the food. Cook. He's not he's one not of those guys. in the kitchen, yes. And it's because anytime someone pays Danny a compliment, he follows up with, but what could I make better? How could we make this experience better? And if you send him a note about a bad evening at a restaurant, he doesn't write back with a bunch of excuses. He writes back with more questions. Because... He understands that criticize the work, not the worker, is also something we can internalize. That what you missed in your, in your chain of events is when you have agency, if you know the change you seek to make, finding out which lock doesn't open the door isn't criticism. It's useful feedback. Finding out that the curb is on the side of the road isn't criticism. It's the only way you can drive in a way that keeps you on the road. So what professionals have to do is show up in a way that they are mindful of who they are seeking to change. It might be their boss, it might be a coworker, it might be an employee, and learn how to change that person more effectively. That's not easy because we have to go one step further back, which is that the 20 years of school have indoctrinated I was about to ask you about school. To not, yes. To not want to change the system. So, you know, you quoted The Godfather. How many times... Would we need to quote The Godfather before someone listening would say, oh, I don't need to see The Godfather, right? There is no amount of, of commentary you can read about The Godfather that replaces seeing The Godfather. The same way binging has undermined so many TV projects because if you just watch to get through to the end as fast as you can, you're not sitting with it for a week waiting, imagining what's going to happen to The Mandalorian next week, right? And so... We, don't, we have this TLDR, check the box. I, I heard the summary of the book. I don't need to read the book culture. But what we really need is to change our minds. And that's what great creativity does. It changes somebody else's mind. And so to answer your question in a roundabout way, we're not even asking the questions. We're just accepting that we're going to go to work and get harassed and hassled and disrespected. We're accepting the fact that there are false proxies everywhere we look and caste and social injustice, but that's just what we have to put up with. Except it's not. Is it too late? Because, you know, uh, a war cry of the generation after, the generations after mine, or the generation after that, is I don't look to work for a sense of community mm-hmm. or a sense of family. I don't, I don't want to, uh, I've, because of school, because of the rest of it, because of what I've watched my parents go through, I don't want to risk putting the best of myself, uh, yeah. uh, to it's make the best totally of myself rash. vulnerable. Uh, and I would rather you just, um, here, I will show up. I will uh, use my intellect, uh, to the amount that I uh, can get away with. I will use it. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you will pay me for my time. And then I'm going to go live a rich life uh, in, in other ways. And, and do you think that's endemic or do you think that's a trend? Or is that a protective outer layer that is depriving the full expansion of the self? So how do you think about that? I, I don't blame, I don't blame them either. at all. I'm amazed, I'm amazed it took that long. And the reason it's happening is because promises were made and broken and broken and broken and broken. And the industrialists made promises. They kept them in the 50s, but they stopped keeping those promises. And so now they're saying, no, I don't believe you. But, and this is the huge but, when it's clear the promise can be kept, when Anna steps on stage to do her stand-up, she's not phoning it in. Right. This is not quiet quitting in that moment. There is meaning being expressed. And it is possible to build an extraordinary team 5, 10, 20 people, in my case, 300, who voluntarily showed up with everything they had because meaning was on the line. And so if you're a calculating CEO, say, how can I make people fake the idea that there's meaning here? It's not going to work. They can sniff that out. But if we are actually making important change happen, 
someone will get on a plane, coach, and fly to India to work with a nonprofit that their nonprofit supports because it's important to them. And what's missing from all these altacockers who are whining about a young generation that's phoning it in is, yeah, because you're phoning it in. Right. Because you're just sitting there cashing checks, giving people a checklist of things to do. Why are you surprised? Seth, how do you in the book talk about you very clearly talk about the need and what's missing. And one of the things I love is that you will only prescribe when you know what the prescription should be. And you will uh, ask the question and, and, and ask people to go and figure out what the prescription could be and share it with you. But in the very real thing of, of uh, what a lot of interaction is from divisions at, at small and big companies is, let me put forth my current best thinking. And then somebody's going to react to that current best thinking. And one of the ways they're going to react is to tell you how your thinking falls short uh, and doesn't mm-hmm. solve their particular needs because of what they're looking to. And so mm-hmm. how should one have those conversations now so that the result isn't the soul crushing thing of, well, then fuck you, I'm just going to phone it in. Because I do feel like those into seeing it all the time, I do see how fraught those moments are and i see the pressures that cause them to be even handled less well right because we have everyone's told well hey don't schedule long meetings anymore long meetings suck so know your agenda and go through it and react quickly uh and so that's what people do on zoom or wherever and it can be kind of gross and the reactions can be kind of gross um, mm-hmm. But and I, you see well-intentioned people, meaning not people who want to be mean or get off on being mean, but the it is perceived as mean, uh, and what it gets back is bad work, which then can lead to someone being frustrated. So, so I agree. You know, you've identified this so well and why it is corrosive. But what's your what? Is, what are some of the ways you've thought about solving it? So I have I have answers, but before I tell you what I think the basic principles are. The idea of raising standards requires enrollment. And most people will not be enrolled early and often in raising the standards you seek to raise unless you enlist them when they come on the team, right? So there are standards for the Olympic 100-yard dash, whatever they call it, 100 meters, right? That we have a stopwatch. It's a very obvious standard. If you were slow, you didn't win the race. But there are also standards in how did you write the Seth Meyers opening monologue, right? We just did the monologue. It wasn't funny. That's a standard. We can tell it wasn't funny. And now this person is going to be our proxy. And if you can't get this person to think it's good, it's not going on the air. We need to make that clear from the beginning. Because if people are enrolled in raising the standards, then we have the opportunity to criticize the work. What's wrong in many institutions is people hire for one thing, which is, do you look like me? Do I want to have lunch with you? Will you be obedient? And then they want them to do something else. So I made this little booklet that goes with the book. And in it, I listed some of the things. The first one is we're here to make change happen. A lot of institutions can't say that. But if that's what you're seeking to do, to turn someone who's tired into someone who's energetic, to turn someone who's sad into someone who's happy, say what it is. We're acting with intention because we're trying to do this on purpose. There's a very clear compass for what we're going to do. And I'm just going to give you three more. Turnover is okay. This is a big new thing. Because in the old days, when it took three months to get up to speed at the law firm, turnover was debilitating. But now it's all in the slack. You can catch up in two days. If you don't like it here, if we're not going the way you want to go, don't come. But this is the way we're going to get there. And the, uh, the next two I'll say are mutual Respect is expected. Respect includes criticizing the other person's work with clarity. That is a respectful act. It is not respectful to say, I am the boss, I don't like it, shut the fuck up. That doesn't work because there's no respect in that. If we're on this journey together with intention, aware of the changes that we seek to make, then 
we can talk to each other about it. That's the way the operating room works. Yeah, that that's all correct for sure. That all makes sense. It's brilliant as always. But where it's so difficult is in, like when you say, well, the 20 years of schooling. Like we're all dealing with the lumps we've already taken, mm-hmm. right? We're all showing up with the scars and the bumps and the bruises and the wounds and the, I shouldn't talk too loud. Uh, Oh yeah, right, I gotta learn to look that person in the eye. Oh, and as a result of that, sometimes we hear, all of us, we hear the criticism of the work as a criticism of not just who we are, but as even our capability and our potential. Right, but that's the system's problem. Explain. And the, whoever, whoever is building a system around this needs to not say, so therefore I won't criticize people. They need to create an environment where appropriate criticism raises the standards. And it is possible to do that with people as young as six years old. As young as, you said? Yeah. Yeah, but what that, about, it doesn't matter. What about you, when you're dealing with people be- who are 45, 50, 55 years old? Who are, I guess I'm asking you, is it possible to enlist people? Okay, I'll give you, this is where it's like, you know how we know, all of us who've um, endeavored to try and improve in various areas of our lives, we've probably accepted, if you're in an interpersonal relationship with with people, various people in in your life, and things are bumpy for whatever reason, the first thing to do is look at yourself and the ways you can improve. And if you can mm-hmm. really improve and you don't tell the other person that's what you're doing, and you know, if you really look inside and you really turn yourself inside out, and then you come to the table instead of like, why do they always do this with, I'm gonna be this thing and show up. We all know that works. We've all done it and seen it pay off in a really meaningful, great way. And yet we all fall short of doing that all the time and just kind of react, right? And go, well, why can't she get this right? Why can't he do that? Instead of saying, let me look at the way I, so with the incentives built they are, with the pressures of time, what does a system look like that has the kind of space for what you're talking about to happen? I think this goes beyond uh, industrial indoctrination and gets back to humans' desire to live in community, to be part of something, and to be respected. So you're not allowed to do whatever you want and expect that people will put up with it. You're not allowed to say whatever's on your mind and not have anyone be offended. None of that is what I am talking about. And I think when people examine it, they can get that clear about it, they acknowledge that that can't be how we live in community. But that's why enrollment is so important. That, you know, in Milton Glaser's uh, creative art class that he kicked me out of at uh, in New York City years and years ago, it was a portfolio class. Everyone came in every uh, class and put their work on the wall. And then Milton went from one piece to the other and ripped it to pieces. But he didn't say, who made this? You're a bad person. He said, let me tell you why the Scotch rule on the edges of this isn't working right. And that is a structure that we are capable of building. We are also capable of building sports teams where people's names aren't on the back of their jerseys and where people aren't playing so that they get a personal endorsement deal. That's when people feel actually the most alive. When they're on the field playing ultimate Frisbee, pass, 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 someone scores, that is Kokoro. That is bringing heart and love to the day, right? Well, we know how to do that at work now. And it's hard, but so is lifting heavy boxes and so is working with toxic chemicals. But the people who lift heavy boxes don't ask, can you give me a shortcut on how to lift heavy boxes? It's their job. Okay, what is the self-talk so that, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this analogy without being too specific, but I think the specificity will help. So I'm gonna try this. Okay. 
sometimes we hire directors to shoot billions. And we say, the, we have certain guidelines that we've learned after a, a long period of time. There's a box within which you have super free reign to make decisions. And that box involves certain like types of lenses that we find work for the actors on this show. Mm -hmm. uh, certain types of camera movements, uh, no steady cam, let's say is a, uh, we've decided that for a variety of reasons and we've tested it out, we don't end up in the editing room using uh, steady cam shots. So we don't take the steady cam off the truck. And a director shows, and we have enrollment meetings um, mm -hmm. before someone comes aboard. Here's the box. Just so you know, watch these episodes. Here's why Long talks about it. And then I've mm -hmm. seen people show up, uh, let's say often an older, you know, an older white dude who's <laughs> like done it their own way, but it could be anybody, right? Someone show up and say on day two, I, uh, hey, let's, let's take the steady cam off the truck because I have an idea where this would be great with a steady. And someone on set, not me, because not let's say says, right, we don't, that's not one of the tools. We want all your best ideas how to do this without that tool. And then I get the feedback. Why don't they think my ideas are good from that director? Mm -hmm. And they shut down. Like I've seen it happen or they say, why am I in director jail? Why am I not? And it, and that I don't, I could see that playing out in many businesses, many scenarios where each person, maybe that director has a lifetime of being told where they can't do, you know, for whatever reason, but it feels untenable. That kind of thing feels to me unsolvable because I, and so I'm how would one try to solve that without the person feeling they hate my ideas? But I, mm -hmm. so there, I'll just lay it out in that way for you. How do you react to that? Yeah, people, what are you going to do? I mean, this is Pressfield. This is the self-limiting beliefs that we all have. I, for many years in my career, and to this day, do it all the time, where I become who I am by doing not doing things that would be rationally constructive for certain kinds of more, where I sabotage certain kinds of professional opportunities. Yes. This person has a thing that is keeping them from being an Academy Award-winning independent filmmaker screenwriter on their own, right? And part of it is finding an edge of a box and intentionally bumping into it so they have a great excuse for why the thing isn't what they need it to be. So if it's the practical question, what we saw at Motown, what we saw at Condé Nast is, like what I say, it, when, when I was helping the team that was doing the emails from the carbon I said, we don't use exclamation points. I know you want to use an exclamation point. We don't use exclamation points. You don't have to ask me why. We're just, we don't use that. That's our style. We also don't speak Italian, right? That's just what this sounds like. So if this was a, a persistent problem, I would imagine that the onboarding meeting could be more like, here are three stories of people who got fired in the middle of one of our episodes. And here are three stories of people who did such a good job, we got them a great gig at Disney doing something they like. Which one of these people would you like to be? These are our stories. Here's the third rail. If you're the kind of person that goes to the third rail, you will step on it and a bad thing will happen. But that's not who you are. And it might not be that bad a problem. But we're still dealing with people. And people, as we get less industrialized, are always going to have this texture, always going to have these self-limiting beliefs. And that's why the turnover part is essential to my story, because if you're not willing to tolerate turnover, you can't have enrollment. Right. But I guess on the side of the person, because the other side, what happens with that is the manager mm -hmm. starts to feel a bunch of different things. One... Uh, oh, um, I don't want to be a dream killer, but I want to serve all the other people that I know are going to be served better if it goes the way that we right. say it has to go, right? You have to be a dream killer. There's no question you have to be a dream killer. That's part of enrollment. That's part of management. So what, that is, but, but- Not management. Management is telling people what to do with authority, using surveillance. No, right. You don't want to manage the direction of no. the movie. 
of this show. You want to lead it. So leadership is better work than management for sure. But you have to lead by extinguishing some dreams. Because the fact is someone who doesn't have your experience or is taking the risks you are taking can dream a huge shortcut. Like, oh, I know, let's replace the whole Supreme Court tomorrow. You have to put that dream out. But, had, but, but putting myself in the in the um, in the shoes of a, the director, let's say, who just read Purple Cow, mm-hmm. uh, and who's like, I know it's not done with Steadicams, but what they don't know is I've spent five years learning how to use the Steadicam to look like something else, and I can elevate this, and I can actually reshow them their show in a way that would light them up, and so. Your tra- how does that conversation, in other words, it, it seems that some of these, thi- look, it's tricky. That's why it's worth writing so many books about it. But, and it's worthwhile and, and necessary. But that tension feels challenging to me between these ideas. And it's, it's the best part because it's such hard work. That's where the value add is. You are enrolling people in a journey who want to make a change happen, and then you are extinguishing the wrong dreams and amplifying the right dreams. That is hard. And most people, every person, can't do it perfectly. But if, particularly for people who are trying to herd creators, it's super challenging because my editor has to say, you know what? The title for this book is no good. You should change it to this. Right. And I have enough clout that I could leave and do it without her. So she has to figure out how to help get us both on the same side of the table because I'm not trying to teach Nikki a lesson. She's not trying to teach me a lesson. She's trying to amplify what I'm trying to do, right? What your director probably wants, without saying it, is they directed the best episode of season four. So you can say, here's what I need for other people to be able to say this about what you did. And you don't want your best work to end up not getting out of the editing room. And I'm going to show you how to do that. And if you can't play, don't come. Yes. How does that translate into a more mechanized or um, corporate or, you know, bigger company? Meaning, how does one encourage... So let me give you an example. Yeah, go ahead. Do it. What should the person at the Marriott in Nashville do if they ran out of herbal tea six weeks ago? They make... Uh, $3 a cup in profit on a cup of herbal tea and there's just no herbal tea coming in and they're just a server. What should they do? Well, the current regime is do absolutely nothing because the system is more important. But at um, the Ritz-Carlton hotels, every single chambermaid has a budget of $250 per guest to spend to make something right on the spot without asking anybody. So which place is able to charge more for a room? Which place has people who stick around longer? It doesn't have to involve the money, but the point is when we give people appropriate windows of agency to say, look, there's a customer right there. You can spend up to this much time or money to use your own judgment to try to fix that customer's problem. And if it doesn't work, here's a piece of paper with a phone number on it where they can call our executive offices And then you don't have to take it personally. But we are trusting you to have a relationship with another human, which is why you signed up for this job in the first place, because you don't want to sit in the back room. And we're giving you a safety net so you don't have to live with the trauma if it shows up. And let's circle, let's like go a little full circle here, which is that when you started telling me about this book, it started from noticing bees. And you talked a little bit about those songs. But I'm really interested in the process that goes on in your head as to how looking at and reading about bees put you in the mind (laughs) to write another business book when it wasn't something you were looking to necessarily do. I totally was not looking to do it. Yeah. In October last year, my heart was ripped wide open for a whole bunch of reasons. And I was um, adrift in terms of the arc of what I wanted to, the impact I wanted to make in the world. And in the place in Northern California where I heard about the bees, then listening to Jacqueline Freeman talk about them for eight hours, 
just that phrase, the song of increase, when I saw so many people around me just in a fetal position, when I saw so many people who were ill or were passing away, when I saw billionaires brutalizing people, I was like, is this really our future? All at the same time, we're going to have 5, 20 million carbon climate refugees every year. Do I want to live in this hellscape? Maybe I could say something about this. And as you know, if I can make it into a blog post or a podcast, that's much better for me. I don't want to spend a year yes. doing this. But I needed to bring out the most leveraged thing I had available because I felt, just as I felt with permission marketing, this is a moment in time when the fabric of our culture is going to shift. And with permission marketing, it happened to come out when spam kept going up. But I don't think permission marketing caused spam to go up. I think what permission marketing did was highlight the fact that some people are going to go in a different direction. And it worked. And this feels to me like the moment, most momentous shift in our lifetime. And AI is like the invention of electricity. In the world before electricity, think about all the jobs that didn't exist. Think about all the opportunities that showed up afterwards. AI is going to do the same thing. We're going to rewrite so many rules. And I just wanted to have a part of helping people think through what those rules might be. That is awesome and, and great. But that's, I'm not hiding anything. That's exactly in 60 seconds what went through my head. Oh, I don't think you're hiding I anything. I didn't. I don't think you're no, hiding anything saying, at I all. I was feeling, I was feeling broken and sad. And this one expression got into my head and I started to feel better. And I said, if I am feeling better just thinking about this for five minutes, maybe somebody else wants to hear it too. I want to talk a little bit about, about this, which is, yeah, because I think it applies. It's, uh, even though it's about you and about the process, you know, calibrating how much to talk about the bees in the book became a real subject, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, I want more bees, right? Because the, the poetry of that and you thinking about it and writing about it and your appreciation of it and you're getting a kick out of it sharing your what you learned for me is like incredibly exciting as a reader right and inspiring because of i guess um what i'm interested in right so and because of how well you do it but in terms of trying to communicate you made a choice along with your editor to perhaps have a little less of it than like i i would have wanted you to have or if you were just writing the book for yourself you might have had right so in thinking about that kind of thing, in a way you're, I think, applying some of these lessons, meaning thinking about what you're, I mean, a lot of your lessons, right? Thinking about not just genre, but thinking about how you want to, um, who your audience is and what the mission of the piece is. But I, I think, the, you know, there are a lot of writers who listen to uh, us talk. So can you talk a little about that? And maybe you'll explain it better than, than I did in my, Trying to be very uh, like gentle and careful. <laughs> this is the only creative argument I can recall us having. And um, partly because I try not to write scripts for billions, but I welcome you arguing with me about the book. And I so treasured your uh, beloved connection to the bees. The, the thing about the bees, so I'll, I'll tell you a, a, two stories right in a row. The first story is this. After the bees are singing the song of safety, how do they find a new place to live? Because they need a hollow tree or the eaves of a roof. They can go up to any place in 30 square miles. There's 12,000 bees in a tight ball. How are they going to find out where to live? Because if the colony splits, they all die. And what they do is they send out 300 scout bees. And the 300 scout bees are able to visit 30 square miles in a short period of time, two days, when a bee finds a place that's pretty good, it comes back and dances in front of the hive and shows them how good the place huh, is yeah. and exactly where it is in feet and compass direction. Yes. And then they send three more bees out to check this bee's work. Now, the thing that's fast, so many fascinating things about this, one of them is 
all of the bees that are doing this are less than three weeks old. So they did not go to home finding school, nor did they apprentice with another scout. They have built in somehow an understanding of what the right size is for one of these things. Then, after all this dancing and checking, now no bee has been to every single one of the places, not one. Then the hive, led without a leader, picks one, and they all go at the same time to one of them. Unerrant, straight to it. And they usually pick, and um, uh, this guy named Thomas had done an enormous amount of research on this, which I could talk about for another half hour. The one they pick is almost always the best one by many measures, even though they had 100 to choose from. They go straight to it. So that's one story. And when people hear that story, they go, that's absolutely fascinating about the bees. And then I can tell a different story, a story, say, about Ray Anderson and Interface Carpet and how he decided to change the arc of the entire company by trusting 12 people to solve a problem. And when you watch the movie uh, about this thing that took 20 years, all 12 of them, most of whom don't work there anymore, say it was the best moment of their life, those 10 years of hard work, working as a team, not the boss, not the owner, to change the tra trajectory of this carpet company. So when I tell both of those stories, and I practice them on real people before I write them down, it's the second story that sits with people a week later. And so I'm fascinated by the B stuff because I can make connections. Oh, I forgot the third story. Third story, just before the B conference, I needed a hook because I hadn't been in a live room with people for a long time. What story can I tell? It's in this fancy winery uh, in Napa, really small thing. And there's a piano over in the corner, and it's got that quilted cover on it, you know? And that quilted cover has a sign on it. You know what the sign says? It always says the same thing. Do not put anything on top of this quilted cover. And on top of that is a sign, a plaque. And I go over and I read the plaque because I think my gig, my riff is going to be, can you imagine? There's a sign that says don't put anything on this, and there's a sign on top. But that's not that good a riff. But you know what the sign on top says? This is the original Steinway D Grand Piano. Not an original, right. the first one, 140 years old. And so what I said to the group was, are you working on something that 140 years from now, there's going to be a sign on it that says, Mr. Steinway made this thing? Because... You're the CEO. You're the founder. You can work on anything you want. What does it mean to work on something with significance? So those are my three stories, right? Ray Anderson, the piano, and the scalpies. The scalpies, I love them, but they just didn't make the cut of me trying to plant a hook that would help people see everything differently. Well, because the scalpie stories, story requires maybe a few words about the subjugation of ego to serve the greater goal. But if you give it, if you give away the joke, the joke doesn't sit. Yes, sure. So, so the key to, to, as you know better than anybody, the key to the powerful analogy is you can't then explain why the joke was funny. As yes, as as a as a the joke I I told you the other day that I've never I've, I have told that joke four times. And I've never been able to tell it as well as you. And then I looked up the joke on the internet where people are arguing about it. They don't understand it at I've all. Never, I, didn't, I, I chose it. not to look it up. I have not looked it up. They think that they think it's a non-joke. It's not it's a non-joke. Non it's the opposite of a non-joke. It's not a non-joke. And if you see me in person, you can ask me about the uh, head like half an orange joke. And I will, I will tell you the joke, but I'm not going to do it on the, on the podcast. Well, I guess what I was if getting... If you did, it would be the most popular episode of hundreds of episodes I of the moment. I guess what I'm, I'm getting to, though, Seth, is that work to... Uh, the thing that excited you was the story about the bees, the scout bees, and the work that you did to decide not to lean the book on it, even if you knew some members of your audience, in fact, some you might care about a lot, mean in the sort of... Uh, 
the types of people for whom that story, the, the story told as metaphor would be the richest. At least one who I would give a kidney right. to. Right. Would so. be, but, but for those who, for whom those kinds of stories land in the richest way, right? Mm-hmm. But you made a decision, and, and those might even be ones that whose approbation you like, uh, you ch- right. but you chose not to serve that, not to overserve that group. And that's real, dis- that's, right. that's kind of what you're talking about in a way, right? Yep. You chose not to yep. indulge that. Right. Because you could have also included that too, right? You could have, I'm saying one could, but you won't. Well, books can get longer and longer, but there's always a cost to one more page. Not in, not in money, but in attention and in impact. That you put the dip in billions and it's the shortest book I ever wrote. I think there's a correlation. Oh, it's such a brilliant book. Uh, the dip, also, I always like to mention it whenever I can. It's kind of a, per- not, it is like, it's perfect. <laughs> it's really just a perfect, it's a perfect thing. Um, the new book is really fantastic. I got to say, everything behind it, because it, it, it stimulates, I could do another two hours with Seth on all of the reasons this book is so important right now. Seth, who are you reading these days to consider the questions of AI safety, AI alignment, the role of AI? Like, or who are you interested in um, listening to and reading on, on these topics? Uh, I'm going to use my mic time first to say, if it weren't for you, there would be no book. Um, that your feedback early in the process is what led me to not just, you know, put it on my hard drive. And so thank you for that. I'm, and to Amy too. I'm so, uh, we are both, you know, so honored to serve that role in your life as you do for us. Um, so the thing about uh, AI and safety is that's not something that we're going to be able to do a thing about. I know, I know, I and, know. It's so terrible. And I, I think it's an interesting commentary that when Instagram and TikTok and porn sites took off, nobody was having a conversation about the safety of those. And yet they have caused spectacular amounts of pain and suffering that it took a very long time before enough. People were, uh, because I did the research, as you know, people were, it just wasn't getting amplified. There were, there people were, I will say, um, there were of absolutely course. there's always uh, somebody uh, but i was saying people at the scale of let's do an organized letter about how dangerous well, but, this is but i'm even thinking about you know um as you know i gave you an eliezer yudkowsky book six years ago not fully about alignment but well i i think about him all the time uh because i think about the cassandra thing this guy saw all of this literally laid mm-hmm. it out and just was ignored uh for yeah. 10 years and I agree with you that it's that there's nothing to be done now. Um, but are you concerned that alongside the incredible benefits, because I do agree with you, it's going to remake the world. And, um, and you know, if you do every um, probability, like most right. of the worlds are better, but a couple of the worlds are cataclysmic. And do you give that any thought or does it not concern you, the cataclysmic versions? So... I took a Stanford PhD level course in AI from one of the pioneers in 1983. I've been thinking about this longer than most people. I worked with Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote some of the classic books on AI uh, and, and some movies with Stanley Kubrick. Um, I'm not worried about this one bit. I'm just not. There's so many things that are going to lead human beings to make possibly cataclysmic choices, but what we're dealing with right this minute is a little bit of a magic trick, a possibility of extraordinary real-time efficiency and leverage, um, something that probably will once again amplify problems with caste and social status. But um, what we really need to think about are the systems that we are supporting every day in service of convenience. And the reason that ChatGPT got buzz at the beginning is it's because it's a great magic trick, but the reason it's gonna catch on is because it's gonna be convenient. You can say, 
please figure out a recipe that's gluten-free and dairy-free and includes these seven ingredients, and it will instantly. It will save you time and hassle. It's suboptimal all the time, but that's what happens to anything that gets big. But think about what happens when instead of going to the therapist once a week for an hour, there's a therapist you can press a button and talk to seven times a day every time you get anxious. That there's all these shifts of things we think are normal are going to change forever. And we're bad at that, but it's better than what happened with nuclear weapons, with toxic waste, with carbon, with racism, with 17 other things. So I'm worried about those things. And what I'm really worried about is the amplification of division by human beings seeking to make a profit by having us hate each other. And that's not a good thing. And once the mob shows up, it's not happy. And I'm, I have to just laugh at myself that I'm asking you that question about possible cataclysmic unintended consequences and its danger as I am drinking a Pepsi Zero Sugar with ice <laughs> from a machine in the fridge at the editing place that hasn't been washed or cleaned out probably in a year and a half. And uh, I have no idea what I'm drinking in the Pepsi Zero Sugar, uh, except that it's absolutely uh, not from nature. And uh, I'm just like blithely, oh, this is delicious. It, it tastes so good. And, uh, and yet I'm concerned uh, about the AI alignment. Seth Godin, you add, uh, I mean, you just add so much to my life, man. Uh, so much love and um, companionship and uh, wisdom and help. And uh, I'm so grateful to uh, have, be able to talk to you. And I'm so grateful to be able to share what you have to say and to share your new book, Song of Significance, which is in stores when? Uh, today, May 30th, 31st, something like May that. May 31st. Uh, in store so go and read the book download it find more it. important give it to somebody else that's why it's a book give it to somebody else all right so you know what we're going to do the first 10 of you to write in to the moment bk at gmail.com i'm going to send you the book so i'll sign it seth will sign it i'll send it the moment bk at gmail.com the first 10 of you get a copy of the book uh all right seth Talk to you uh, very Love soon. Love you, bud.